Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show, episode number 858-858. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've got Captain Gary Pinkerton with us today to uh, talk to us about a bunch of things real estate wise, answer a few listener questions, but most importantly, tell us something we don't know about one of these three things, operating a nuclear submarine, operating a nuclear reactor or launching missiles. Now, Gary, I'm sure you're not going to give us any classified information here, but uh <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show. And uh, how do you like me putting you on the spot like that? Oh, thanks. Well, I love it. Um, and, and thanks for uh, inviting me back. Always a pleasure. Um, I won't tell you anything classified either because I don't really want to go to prison. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think that most people don't appreciate that driving a submarine or a submarine drives in the water just like an airplane drives in the air. Now, there's a couple of minor differences, but they both have, you know, essentially uh, planes on, you know, somewhere up forward and they have planes in the back on a submarine. Uh, it's the, the big planes are back on the back and, and you operate those just like you do wings. You, you, yeah, you call them planes, not wings. Why is that? Yeah, we call them planes. Yeah, yeah plane surfaces. I okay. mean, it, an airplane would call it a, a plane surface as well, but they call it wings for some reason. Right. Um, but, but we uh, basically change depth uh, and maintain depth on a submarine changing depth with the big planes on the back, like the big uh, tail of a dolphin, if you will. Mm -hmm. It points the submarine in a different, you know, an up or down elevation and then our attitude and and then it moves, you know, changes depth that way. Uh, but the thing that's different with the airplane is that, um, you know, water is many times more dense more than dense. air. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, so when you change, you go from the surface of the earth to space, outer space, you know, that's 14 pounds of pressure. Uh, and in the ocean, it's 44 pounds per hundred feet. So, wow. <laughs> uh, we can't allow, you know, what you do in a, in a, um, in an airplane is you, you have to actually pressurize the inside of the compartment or the cabin because otherwise it'll crush like an aluminum can, even just in that little change. We can imagine underwater. So these submarines are, you know, an inch or two thick, uh, and, and they don't compress really very much at all. So a little bit different that way. You don't, your ears don't pop like they do, uh, you know, in an airplane. Very interesting. Gary, when I hear, when I'm watching a movie and there's a submarine involved, they say 30 degrees down bubble, 
Why do they say right. that? What does that I'm, mean, down bubble? I mean, I mean, I guess they're going down. That's what I interpret. But, but down bubble, like what, what do they mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, those uh, those carpenters levels where there's a little air bubble and it, you know, you can tell whether oh, it's yeah. level or not. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So. So the old school submarines, I mean, up until like five years ago, all of our submarines, maybe 10 years, had those same kinds of inclinometers or an air bubble in water or like some liquid. And it would it would tell you what the attitude of the submarine is, because when you get, you know, if you point down five degrees and then get stabilized there, sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what angle you are at. So so that bubble, you know, it had a 30 degree marker on it. And so the the plainsmen would would use those big, that big tail or the big planes back there to adjust the submarine so it's pointing down at a 30-degree angle. And that's a big one, by the way. And that's the one that you see when they jump out of the ocean testing the emergency blow systems. Um, that's the angle that they're pulling there. It's pretty, pretty hefty. So 30 degrees is really steep, right? It is very steep. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Interesting. You know, I remember, I think it was the first time I met you at meet the masters in uh, Irvine, California. And I remember standing in the room, I, I believe it was the first time we met with you. And, and you told me you, you were with the Navy. You're always so humble. You didn't bother to say you were a captain of a nuclear submarine, which is kind of a big deal, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's interesting. And you're, and you're retired now just doing real estate investing, right? I am. Yeah. And loving it. Absolutely loving it. Good stuff. Good stuff. So I mentioned on the show on uh, Monday that uh, you and Sue, your wife, uh, now just got up to your, I think your 20th property, right? Uh, Very you, close. You used yeah. all your Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, 10 loans each. And, and now you're just waiting for Trump to increase the limit, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. We, to be exactly correct about it, we're, they're all spoken for under contract. Some of them are new construction still being built, but yeah, by the end of the year or early next year, we hope to be there and, and very proud of that fact. How long did it take you to do it? How, how long have you been investing? Gosh. Yeah. So we started, uh, bought, bought the first one at the very beginning of 2012 and, you know, so a little over five years and, and there was a pause in there as I was transitioning out of the military and um, obviously my W-2 income got interrupted. And so we transitioned over to Sue's, uh, but also building a little down payment capital, you know, so there was a time to, to refill the well, if you will. Yeah, fantastic. So what are some of the things that you've learned as an investor over the years? I mean, I'm sure you've had some bumps in the road. You know, this is certainly not all rosy. Just share any of that with the listeners, if you would. I mean, we got a bunch of stuff we got to cover, but I just am asking a general question to, to start. And, you know, just any great tips, any things you've learned, problems you've had or, or metrics you want to share on your portfolio? Sure, absolutely. So I, I think uh, some of the stuff I'm going to say is common and, and that you have heard from others, but it's good to kind of get it reinforced from somebody, I guess, that's down in the trenches still fairly early in their investing. Um, the team on the ground, extremely important. The manager makes the most difference of everything. Um, and to me, the most important lesson learned, and we talked about this, Jason, in a previous podcast a, a month or two ago, uh, is that it's most important that your interests and the manager's interests are aligned. And I think that's, that's super important. Um, and I, you know, I, I think cash flow for most of us is about staying power. Um, we talked about that in Oklahoma city last weekend. Uh, it's about staying power. If you have a positive cash flow or a very close to zero cash flow or better, uh, you have the ability to write out good times and bad times, you know, uh, tenant evictions and, and other, you know, damages or failed equipment, um, you know, with reserves and that fairly close to zero or positive cash flow, I think you're in good shape. Uh, and I've also learned over time, and this was surprising to me, that a majority of the return on investment comes from 
you know, just being able to get good, prudent leverage uh, on an asset and hedge yourself against inflation and and have the tenant pay down your mortgage. Those two things are really the biggest parts. Cash flow is really, again, just about staying power. It's kind of interesting that you say that because uh, since you started investing in 2012, I think you said there hasn't been much inflation. I mean, there certainly it's certainly more than the government has told us. Okay, we all know that, that the government numbers are completely understated. But you know, it's not like it's been a severe inflationary time in in the regular world. But in the terms of assets, there's been tons of asset inflation, massive, massive asset inflation, which, you know, I've talked about how how does that play out in 10 years? Because many people aren't, because of that asset inflation, able to enter what I call the investor class. Uh, and I think that's a big deal. I think that really is bad for society, but I think it's good for us as landlords because, uh, you know, uh, that means more renters overall. But, um, yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the big bubble in assets is not necessarily, you know, single family homes in, you know, in linear markets. No, but, it's definitely uh, not that. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but so, single family yeah. homes and other types of real estate in cyclical markets have inflated dramatically. And Absolutely. the stock market's way up. And, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies are way up. Uh, gold has done like nothing, <laughs> pretty much. We should do a, a whole podcast or something on, on the, you know, that idea. Uh, and, and this came to me on the idea of, of uh, you know, leveraging prudent debt and getting getting credit for all of the the appreciation that occurs, even the boring four percent a year appreciation or something in a, in a linear market, getting credit for all of that, most of which the lender funded really makes a big difference. You know, it's a 20 percent return on investment. So uh, just in a, in a very boring market is pretty impressive. And, and that's one of the things that I've learned. Um, and, and it's really kind of surprised me. The other thing I learned, and I think many of hey, your listeners Gary, are this way. Gary, before yeah. you go on, I just would like you to drill down on that and explain sure. that a little bit. You threw sure. out the number 4%, then you threw out the number 20%. Yeah. And I think some people might be listening thinking, what is he talking about? Sure, <laughs> You're talking about leveraged return on investment, and you're not I even am. including tax benefits, cash flow, inflation-induced debt destruction, just leverage. Right. That's it. But go right. ahead. Yeah debt, debt pay down or any of that, right? So, okay. So let's say that you have a hundred thousand dollar house and you're going to have $20,000 of your money. Uh, so a 20% down payment and there's a little bit for closing costs, but I'll leave that out of the picture here for easy math. Um, and so if you took that hundred thousand dollar house and broke it into five parts, five pie pieces, uh, that would be 20,000 each. And the bank has agreed to fund, put the money in for four of those five pie pieces. Well, each one of those pieces, each one of those twenty thousand uh, dollar components, is going to go up by, uh, you know, by four percent. And and so since I get the credit for the the appreciation of his part, the bank's part, even though they put all the money in, um, I, I get credit for that. So what's really happening is this hundred thousand dollar house goes up by four thousand dollars, but I've only got twenty in the property. So if you take four thousand and divide it by twenty, you see that I actually got a twenty percent return from that, not 4%. And it's because I got to use all five pie pieces worth of the increase. Does that help? Yeah, that that really is one of the amazing things. It's it's deceptively simple, but incredibly powerful is that when you're saying like the lender, you know, they they loan the money on the property and the property still produces positive cash flow, but you get all the credit 
In other words, yeah. you get the benefit. They don't get to participate in the appreciation of the property. But interestingly, you'd think, well, you know, you hear people say, well, leveraged is a two-edged sword. And I, I've argued not really, actually, because if if it goes the other way and say everything goes to hell in a handbasket and, um, you know, we got 30-degree down bubble and the market crashes, okay, um, <laughs> you know, people just walk away. Right, <laughs> so, right. So it's, yeah. it's like, what you know, it, it's the best of both worlds. Um, I mean, admittedly, that's kind of the nuclear option. It's, you don't want to walk away from your properties. But, you know, millions of people made that decision in the last Great Recession. Uh, exactly. I think about 12 million people, actually. And, and the people who didn't walk away, you know, they did short sales. They did workouts. They got loan modifications um, where they reduced interest rates. I mean, I got those on a bunch of my properties. And it really is better either way you know now you got to use it somewhat responsibly but yeah super powerful okay i interrupted you on that tangent do you remember what else we were going to say after the leverage discussion i do i was certainly i was going on my own little bit of a shift and tangent and and that was to say that one of the other things that i learned i i got into this uh you know after 26 years 25 years in the navy and and uh, you know i loved my time in the submarine force uh, but it was challenging on the family, you know, time and time again, you know, dragging my family around the country. And this is not unique to my job. Many people have to go through this very long hours, moving people around and asking them to, you know, one more time, take one for the team, putting my career kind of above the family. And it was my, you know, and things were, were getting rough. And so it was my impression that the job was doing it to me and I needed to replace this W-2 income with passive income. Right. And so. Um, that, you know, that was the focus and I blamed it on the job. Of course it was me making those decisions, those wrong decisions, but about, you know, priorities, but, but nonetheless, uh, I think many people out there, I think this really resonates. Um, I, I talk to people all the time like this about this and, and, uh, you know, they say the same thing. They're like the moment that my passive income from real estate can exceed my W2, I'm out. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, but most as, of as Kiyosaki says, that's what he calls getting out of the rat race. Right. Out of the route race or, or Fernando's financial freedom day. Right. Right. And yeah. when I found when I found financial freedom, what I realized was I didn't actually want to stop working. I want to produce. I want to add value to the world. And you get paid for doing that. Yep. Um, and I'm in a completely different field now. What I wanted was the ability to continue going to work there or anywhere else on my terms. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what people really want options. They don't yeah. really right. want to stop producing. No, I know. And, it's, you know, yeah. like this whole concept of retirement is just stupid if you ask me like yeah, I, I, I have it's not healthy it's not good as humans we're meant to be engaged in the world and we're meant to be contributing to the world and that's what gives us a sense of meaning and purpose and and you know it's it's good for us it's good for other people it's a win-win thing i mean you know the idea of sitting on a beach in belize which is a shithole um but that's another discussion <laughs> um you know uh or buying property there too same thing um you know it's just so unattractive to me like i would i can't imagine myself ever actually wanting to do that but hey you know different strokes for different folks right yeah you know i'm with you i've traveled many times outside the u.s as you have and every time i come back i i kind of you know stop myself from literally kissing the ground i mean we have i'm not saying it's the greatest country in the world but i am saying that it's the, pretty close lights, <laughs> the lights always come on i know it's amazing yeah my friend uh, is in ukraine now and i was there with him about a month and a half ago uh i met up with a buddy over there and uh, and he was out on a date uh and he he sent me a voxer message and he's at this restaurant and they couldn't 
they wouldn't they were holding him and his date hostage because their power went out and they couldn't run his credit card for wow. $19 and they said you have to stay here until the power comes back on. Can you believe like living? I mean, that's just absurd. Wow. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's crazy. So, well, we make fun of our litigious society here, but just yeah. feeling, knowing that they'd get sued for doing that makes us, you know, very free people over here. It, it does. You know, lawyers serve a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Okay, go ahead. Tell us more. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, I wanted options and, um, and so once I got those options, then it really opened up my mind to like, what else can I do in this world? And it's funny that kind of along the way, um, I mean, I knew that, that I had already kind of made decisions to, you know, to leave the military and kind of step aside from that because I was, I was at this point where signing up for becoming an admiral or, you know, and flag officer, while it was really an, an exciting, enticing idea, it meant many, many more years in a row. And my, that just wasn't in the cards for my family. So I, but not having to go off and hustle and get a job, um, allowed me to just open my mind and say, you know, what does inspire me? Where do I think I could add the most value? Um, and I'm very, you know, humbled and happy to have come across Pat Donahoe back when I was with Paradigm Life back, back when I was, uh, getting my first properties and stumbled onto, you know, the idea of being able to, um, you know, increase the efficiency of my properties by, you know, funding them in a different way. And it added, you know, lots of safety and security. So, I, you know, so, with so that, the first with that place, appeal. the first place I ever heard about this technique um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm using it myself now, but it was back in maybe 2004 when I read Doug Andrews book. Uh, I think it was called, I can't remember the name of the book now, but do you know you know him right he was kind of a big deal in this world yeah yeah, yeah i can't think of his book either and, <laughs> and i tell you i his book was like divided into two parts and i loved the first part and the second part i just thought was totally overrated um but you guys have kind of moved the needle on this whole thing so uh yeah t tell us how how you came on to that and you know what it meant to you and then let's get to some listener questions Perfect. So, uh, you know, to go back to the end of 2011, I was waiting for this new construction fourplex that that I was having uh, built and was in escrow on. I was, you know, just waiting for that to get finished. And I had a couple of months and I was looking for ways to optimize my portfolio that I was kind of designing and thinking about when I was going to buy my properties and get those at the time, you know, four finance properties that I was allowed. And uh, I was and I was trying to figure out, well, how is there a way in which I can not have my own dollars in the property? Is there a way that I can, you know, kind of increase the velocity of my money? I've read Robert Kiyosaki's books and he talked about that a lot. Uh, and, you know, I, I came across an, an advertisement that Patrick was was doing uh, with the real estate guys. And I went and took a look at, at all of the, you know, that kind of stuff with Patrick. And um, at the same time, I was learning about Jason Hartman's network and realizing that that was the best place, you know, to, to go with my properties. And so I knew where I was going to get the properties. And then I started learning from Patrick about how to get the properties and, uh, and how to fund the, you know, the down payments with them and allow my money to continue working while I use somebody else's money in as the down payment. And the beauty is that it, it also satisfies the requirements of Fannie Mae, which you wouldn't think would be true. Right. That's interesting. One of the things because, yeah. With, right. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. One of the things with Fannie Mae is that they, you know, they're, they're worried about you borrowing the down payment because that has somehow been linked to concerns about 2008 and 2009, although I'm not exactly sure that connection. 
Uh, but, oh, well, but I, I can tell you. Through. I mean, basically, there were these uh, various down payment loan programs out there, and even some of them were charitable. They were just basically trying to help people, you know, like low-income people buy a house, right? Um, but, you know, the reality of life is, Gary, when people don't have skin in the game, they yeah. don't act responsibly. That's just the way it is. <laughs> right. So in this and, in this so, case, yeah. you really yeah. do because right. you're pledging your own dollars as collateral for money to borrow from the insurance company. But right. but if you think about like a home equity line of credit, you know, those have been abused over time. But one of the beautiful things about a HELOC or a home equity line of credit is that let's say that you have a $100,000 uh, credit line and you use 20000 of it. Uh, and then at some point you have money coming from a cash line asset and you put 5,000 of that back. Well, that 5,000, you know, comes off the 20. Now there's only 15,000 borrowed and that 5,000 is immediately available to borrow again. And, and so this works exactly like that. So as my tenant is paying down this loan from the insurance company for me, that money's, you know, immediately available again to go after the next property. So in the first, you know, you asked me how, how long had it, had I been investing those first couple of years, I, I invested in a couple of properties and then had to wait, had to kind of pause. But now what Sue and I see is that we have several loans, you know, out for each of these properties, money flowing in from all of the tenants. It only takes a month or two. Uh, and there's enough, you know, for the next down payment and then the next down payment. So it's really uh, pretty fascinating to see this snowball start to roll. Um, and it's made a huge change. And so as I was, you know, as I mentioned, I was coming out of the military and I know I had reached my financial freedom, uh, but I decided I didn't really want to quit working. And if that's true, uh, what do I want to do? And uh, and I decided that the thing that inspired me as much as real estate and, and more than anything else out there was, uh, you know, the, the vision and, and what Patrick had done for my family's life and, and our finances and our just comfort. Uh, and I wanted to kind of spread that. Yeah. And so the neat thing about it is also there's the asset protection component. And mm -hmm. honestly, that was one of my primary motivators um, initially is that I just loved having, you know, I, I like, you know, hide money in this little box over here and over there and, you know yeah. uh, having some diversification of some things but the problem is if you do that as far as the way the wall street cartel interprets it you're just gonna you know you're just never gonna make any money because it's all you know i mean conceptually diversification perpetuates wealth and concentration creates wealth okay so right. that's yeah. the you know the basic philosophical underpinning but you know once you've got some money you've got some wealth then you you become more conservative because you you want to protect it because hey you're looking back and you're thinking hey i i spent you know 10 20 years maybe 30 40 years maybe 50 years earning it and i don't want to lose it i don't have time to to earn it again and I, i'm just too tired you know yeah so yeah. um so you want to get things in some little cubby holes and so um there's some good uh, asset protection component as well so yeah yeah yes good. yes so the money the money inside that product inside that inside your personal bank or your life insurance policy is protected from most lawsuits and things like that yeah that's that's a good point and uh it, it also you know also there's the life insurance side and that was really important for me at the time that we were doing this if you remember i, I said that you know i um i had you know things were kind of rocky for us and i had done all this studying uh, on on real estate and i was certainly sold on the idea and i certainly still am but susan was in a different place she was studying to become a nurse she was working her rear off 
and uh, she knew nothing about real estate. And here I had, you know, uh, really bought into the idea that I wanted to have as much fixed rate debt as I could get, you know, 30 year fixed debt. And so, but, but, you know, to have a million or so of debt and not understand real estate was not that comfortable, you know, for Sue. So if I did get, you know, hit by the proverbial bus, you know, the fact that my banking system also brought life insurance, um, that, that would have completely paid off all that debt for her. And she'd have, you know, debt free cash flowing assets that she could then decide to get rid of, but would certainly provide a lot of cash flow if, if she chose not to. Yeah. And so some of my skepticisms have been, well, don't you pay a big fat handling fee uh, to yeah. the insurance company for doing that? And then also, you know, uh, could these companies go out of business, right, and not be able mm-hmm. to pay claims or loan money on the terms um, discussed? And then, um, uh, you know, will inflation uh, basically reduce the value of that policy. So you guys kind of move the needle on some of this stuff. I mean, I'm not saying it's like the greatest thing in the world, but I think it's a good, it's a good strategy. Yeah. You know, it's a neat strategy. I mean, I think you're you're more into it than I am, um, you know, obviously. <laughs> uh, but uh, but you know, uh, just uh, address those for, for a moment, and then let's go on to some of these questions. Of course. So. Um you know, you'd, you'd commented, uh, you know, are you paying a lot for the insurance side? Like a of it? handling well, fee. Yeah. You know, you yeah, gotta pay a people a handling fee. fee to do stuff. For right. You, right. And so one of the, yeah, one of the beautiful things that, that, you know, we do when we're designing them this way is we reduce down the insurance uh, focus and increase the cash focus of it as much as possible. And most of the handling fees or the, the mortality charges, if you will, uh, are in that base insurance policy, that main portion, the insurance part. And we minimize that, you know, on just about a, you know, a, a factor of four, maybe five. And uh, it has a huge reduction in impact. Some of the other, you know, concerns sometimes is that your money's not accessible early on. Well, in fact, the way we, way I do it and way I design it for real estate investors, you know, there's on the order of 90%, 90% of the money uh, available on day one, you know, to go, to go use. So that kind of, you know, certainly removes that, you know, as far as as inflation goes, you know, these companies are, um, you know, they're putting this money to work in the economy. They're not sticking in the stock market. They're putting it to work in the economy and they are, you know, getting long term commitments from stable companies. And so they're really investing in these hard assets, which makes it more difficult for one of these companies to go out of business than, you know, let's say a variable life insurance policy that is all invested in the stock market. Uh, You know, it's so for them to go out of business means that the, you know, that Coca-Cola and Caterpillar and General Electric have defaulted on loans to them, which means that probably the U.S. dollar is not that helpful anyway at that moment, right? I mean, we're probably in a complete reset. Uh, So, you know, similar to in real estate where I try to invest in hard assets, um, I, you know, my policy, my insurance policy is investing in hard assets in reality. And, and then I guess the other thing I would say is just, you know, track record, past performance is no indication of forward look, right? But, but when you look at companies that have been around for 150 years, uh, have been paying profits, they've been profitable every year for 110. Uh, and then you look at like the Great Depression or 2000 and 2008, um, banks failing across America, and these guys are paying profits. So I'm not saying it's going to always work forward, but one of the great things about this industry is that they are they are um, controlled, audited by the states, and uh, and so it's you know it's not a federally controlled thing. It's a much more I think intensive look from a state level, and then the rating agencies are fairly rough on them. So uh, you can get a pretty good feel for how capitalized they are. You know, so 
I think uh, I think with that, we should get on to your listener questions. All right. Sounds good, Gary. So uh, we have had this contest going, and uh, you can enter at jasonhartman.com slash contest, and uh, we will pick a winner here very soon. Um, and uh, I think we'll pick the winner. Ne- we'll announce the winner next week. How's that sound? And these are for the Apple AirPods. I love these things. They're one of my favorite products. I use them all the time because I love to listen to podcasts and audiobooks, right? So, um, so that's good stuff. So Sarah had a question. Uh, she said, um, and, and th- Sarah, I, I'm going to tell you before I even read your question. I wish I could answer this one for you, but I can't. <laughs> There's a couple reasons. <laughs> uh, number one is, I don't know. Number two is, I don't want my competitors to know. Uh, and uh, number three is, um, we don't want to announce it until we have something really solidified, okay? But she asked, you know, what are the new markets uh, you're getting into and why? And, um, you know, we are constantly looking for new markets and, you know, it's not really a question of new markets as we, I think we t- talked about that earlier in this episode. It's a question of new or good quality teams um, because the whole thing lives or dies on the team of people you have. Um, like I've said many times, I'd rather have an A team and a B market than an A market and a B team because the team is just more important than the market. Okay. It really is. Um, and Gary, I, I I think on this episode, you said that just a little while ago, right? When you talk about the whole thing lives or dies on the manager and, um, yeah, you know, absolutely. That kind of yeah. I, that is 100% the issue. Yeah. Now do you self, I meant to ask you back then, are you self managing any of your properties or have you ever tried it? Yeah. Great question. Uh, very, very timely question. I like self management. I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have a four, a four unit building. My first one, uh, it was new construction. So it was kind of a class A four unit. And it's down in San Antonio and I am self-managing that. I have been self-managing it for about two years. The thing that uh, uh, was challenging for me was uh, just setting up the whole dynamics of showing the thing, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, leasing it up. And I know you can, yeah. I know you can do that separately, but then there was also the turn that, you know, the turning the property. So I have made a decision to try out a new property manager down there as I get more busy working with Pat. Um, and, and so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm giving them a unit as the unit becomes available. And I've done that with one unit and I have another one coming due. So I'm going to do it with that one. But I'm also considering this, this, uh, new, uh, new construction property I just purchased. You know, one of the challenges with new construction nowadays is that it doesn't cash flow quite as well sometimes at all. And, uh, it's expensive. You're paying a yeah. premium price. Yeah. And, That's right. and the market's gone, you know, prices have gone right. up. So it's harder. So yeah. there's, you know, partic- uh, one of the things I'm considering is, well, if it's new construction and there's a, a you know, a class A single family uh, renter in there, you know, with a good white collar job, maybe that's a property that I can look to self-manage and save a couple hundred dollars. Okay, and so let me bottom. let me address yeah. that too. what you're sure. saying, because I mentioned this when we were in Oklahoma City uh, on our property tour. And, um, you know, the I mean, look. This is all individual case by case basis with real estate. Everything is. But I think the best type of tenant is when you get a good quality property in a good quality area 
and they will fight to stay in that area. Uh, ideally, it's like a family where they want to keep their kids in a school district. Um, and, you know, those tenants are pretty darn stable. Okay. They're, they're awesome. And one of the things I learned with this four unit, and the reason I took it over, again, back to that interest not aligned with your manager, is that my manager's interest were to, they didn't care at all about the tenants. And they were actually fairly rude to them. And I had one tenant say that they stopped answering the phone once I signed the lease and moved in. And and uh, so, you know, it was not a good manager, clearly. I'm not trying to say all managers are like this. But but I took over that building because I knew I could be kind to my tenants. And they loved me. And the only ones that have moved are actually physically moving out of state because of their jobs. Uh, so, yeah, I think um, I think the same thing would be repeated in, in you know, a new construction single family home. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, so let's go back to the contest here. And Sarah, also thank you for your comment. Uh, You said, I love Jason's candidates, his honesty, and the economics education. All right, Scott didn't have a question. But he said, I've listened to many other real estate podcasts. Scott, there are other podcasts. <laughs> they all seem to be, uh, they all seem to be trying to sell their information. Sure, they give some generic ideas, but nothing, uh, you can sink your teeth into. Jason is different. Exclamation. Thank you. Um, uh, he is selling properties with a community around them that makes you successful. He gives the information for free and it is great direction for the real estate investing world. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. Juan had a question, and Juan says, um, how do you find the best property management companies to ensure that your investment cash flows? Well, (laughs) Gary, you can uh, take that one a little bit too, but I'll just say it is mostly with us nowadays, it's word of mouth. Because, you know, after doing this for 13 years, you know, we we just know almost everyone in the industry nowadays, right? In the old days, though, you know, back in 2004, 2005, when I first got into this sort of nationwide look at real estate investing, it was a lot harder um, because I didn't know anybody. You know, I, I was like sitting in Irvine, California and selling my traditional real estate company to Coldwell Banker back then. And, um, you know, I was trying to do that and, and start this. And, um, you know, it it was just a completely, uh, a completely much more difficult thing. Um, you know, going out and just meeting people and, you know, a lot of them are crooks and, you know, we still get a little bit of a few crooks now and then (laughs) slip through the cracks (laughs) nowadays. And then, you know, maybe they're not outright crooks, but they're just bad operators, you know, um, or, or the worst thing is this one. They're good until they're bad. And they usually get bad when they get too much business. So, you know, it's like they, and when the too much business thing is kind of, uh, Napoleon had this great quote that I love. It's, you know, the most dangerous moment comes with victory. I mean, maybe in the military, you've used that quote, you know, the most dangerous moment comes with victory because that's the time you rest on your laurels, you become complacent, you get cocky, you know, maybe you think, and this is what happens to these people. We'll have like this great local market specialist, this great property manager, then we'll send them a hundred transactions and they're like, you know, they think they walk on water and it's like, yeah, it's hubris, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's (laughs) terrible. So any, anything to add to the management company thing though? 
Yeah. So size is a really good point. Uh, you know, I, I think if you have somebody who, um, you know, I think there's probably a sweet spot, like they're managing a hundred doors, but not managing more than 500 doors or, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a thousand, but that gets pretty big, right? So it's enough that they have a system. It's not just two people and a pickup truck. Right. Uh, but, it, and it's also big enough that they're probably not crooks if they're managing that many people. Uh, but they're not so big that they get set in their ways. I mean, I have managers that say, hey, I have 1,600 properties. I can't take time to email you or tell you everything. It's just the way we do the business here, you know? So that's a little a, a little bit frustrating. Uh, so I think it's it's about the right size of the property manager. I would also say that it's, it's really important um, you know, if you have a group to ask and get word of mouth and referral, I think that's great. But also to understand that a good fit with a property manager is also about you. It's about your personality and what what kind of keys you off. For example, uh, we have one property manager who who does a decent job, but it drives uh, my wife, Sue, who's doing their books now crazy because uh, they send they end their books in the middle of the month, you know, and she's like, who does that? It's so frustrating uh, to to be able to balance that way. Um, that's a very small thing, right? But but uh, when when your property manager is not responsive to you, I think that's a bad fit. Um, if if you really get frustrated when they uh, nickel and dime you, that'll that'll turn you off, right? And so it, it, you know you probably it's like a good tenant. You're not going to find your best property manager the first time. But always set yourself up, like Jason said, with somebody who's probably not a crook uh, because they have a good reputation and been doing it a while, and also not so big that you're just going to be a number. And then just kind of move from one of those to another. And after a couple, you know, you'll find someone that's a good fit for you. Good, good, good comments, Gary. Okay, so the first one is I want to not disagree with you, but I just want to add a, uh, you know, kind of a side note to what you said about the size of the company. And that is this one. No rules or laws apply universally. Yeah. Including this one, <laughs> because, <laughs> exactly. because, you know, it, I mean, some companies when they're big and they're scaled up, you know, they're great. And yes. some companies when they're big and scaled up, they're just lame and impersonal. And then, you know, it's, it, it all depends, you know, it just depends. Uh, and, and some yeah. companies and some companies when they're small, they're like the roll up your sleeves, personal service type of thing. You know, you can have a, a, a two person shop and they can do a pretty good job. It just depends. But I will yeah. tell you, in the smaller business, when it's really small, you might get great service, but if they have like an, a big, you know, like illness or uh, something yeah. like that, it's, it could really interfere with things because they have no backup, right? Exactly. Uh, so. I mean, I have a, I have a one manager that has 2,500 or so units and they do a tremendous job. Yeah. It just so happens that their philosophy is better in alignment. So I think my second part's more important than the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. And then the other thing I just want to say, Gary, is folks consider self-management not if you're new this is not for newbies okay but if you've you know if you've done this a little while and you know you you have some experience okay don't do this when you're brand new okay um but you know here's the myth about self-management the myth i think is that it takes more time Sometimes it actually takes less time because sometimes having that middleman in there, that property manager, it's like you got to manage them and then by extension manage the tenant. Um, and you know, sometimes self management, I mean, you just never like my landlord here where I live, they're self managing. 
they never hear from me almost never i'm you know it's like yeah. and i'm thinking what hassle are they going through i send the rent like 10 <laughs> days early every month yeah. you know i mean it's it's just great and and yes uh if you're not a regular listener i am a renter and i have lots of rental properties that other people rent from me because i think that's the best deal rent a high-end property for yourself and rent low-end properties to other people just wanted to throw that in there in case you're new and you're thinking what what is this hypocrite <laughs> he doesn't even own his own house no i've owned no, lots I'm of houses big fan of that yeah <laughs> i've owned lots of expensive houses in places like newport coast and irvine and uh and uh, no i'm just i'm not into it i like i like being a renter it's it's pretty great okay so juan's comment is great knowledge and information sharing the show is not only informative but it's also entertaining jason is genuine and not looking to sell anything thank you juan well i am looking to sell some things but uh, <laughs> i'm glad i don't come across as a cheesy salesman um and then um juan actually had a second question maybe we'll wrap up with this one to take full advantage of tax benefits how would you suggest setting up my business entity structure oh god i had to read that question from Juan. one we need like two more episodes to answer that question <laughs> it's complicated as far as taxes you know I don't know if you're married or not, because that's not a question we asked. And I don't know if you work full time or not, or if you have your own business or what uh, your situation is. But go back and listen to some of the episodes. Just go to jasonhartman.com and search real estate professional. And that is something you should work toward. Try and get yourself... Uh, set up so that the IRS can consider you a real estate professional. It's not easy to do. I'm just going to warn you. It's not easy, but it's, it could be very worthwhile, but Again, you know, for that to be meaningful and to even qualify for it or consider qualifying for it, I'd say you probably got to have at least 10 properties or more. Uh, so that's, you know, for someone who's pretty serious about real estate investing, uh, you know, and we have clients with uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of properties. But um, that's definitely one thing I would say. Um, and then use Property Tracker, PropertyTracker.com. Just got a beautiful makeover. It looks gorgeous. And use that to make sure you're tracking all your deductions and making your tax filing easy. And um, Gary, you're going to have something to add to that, I'm sure. <laughs> that I'm not a tax professional, but... Yes, and uh, that's, you know, uh, I, that's our, <laughs> our disclaimer for me too, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I have learned a ton from some professional uh, CPAs and tax attorneys out there just in reading their books and in stuff that is, has been on your podcast, Jason. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and one that we've had on yeah. the show we would never do business again. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. We both had uh, bad experiences with that guy. <laughs> yeah, he actually writes a pretty good book, but but I'm not going to use their services anymore. He, he's got two uh, books out now, I think. And uh, yeah, no, he's he was no good. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. But th there's a difference between an operating business. You know, if your income is is an operating income from sales or service, um, and and if it's you know passed through. Uh, you know, rental income and that kind of stuff. So it's a bit, you know, it's a bit complicated. We can't actually answer the question without knowing specifically that because my answer to it would be different. It would be the opposite, uh, you know, whether it's S Corp or LLC and those kinds of things. But yeah, I, I think your advice on real estate professional and tracking your expenses, uh, you know, paying family members if they can do services for you, all really good ideas. Child labor. Yes, child <laughs> labor. That's right. They learned a lot. Yeah. Have, have your kids work in your property sweatshop and, um, right. and pay them 
more than they should get so you can use them as a tax deduction uh so that's yeah that's that's yeah, pretty mine good has tried to sue me for paper cuts before. yeah <laughs> <laughs> your kids have tried to sue you for paper cuts yeah <laughs> oh funny oh gosh okay well uh the show that we recommend violating child labor laws on and abusing your children okay <laughs> all right hey gary we gotta wrap it up go to jasonhartman.com slash contest and enter to win the airpods we're gonna wrap that contest up pretty quick gary Thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to say anything else? And uh, let's wrap it up. No, absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Um, if you want to, you know, learn more about, you know, what I'm doing and, and how I do that with, with real estate, you know, one, one good source is uh, beyourbank.com. Uh, and I would love to talk to anybody about any of these topics. My favorite topic to talk about is real estate, but personal finance is really close behind. Thanks, Jason. That was a true pleasure. All right, Captain Pinkerton, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.